Hello, everybody, and welcome to the last Brixton Book Jam of 2016. It's wonderful to have you all here. As usual, we've got some great writers and great musicians here this evening, and in some cases, there'll be a mixture of both. Um, we'll have two short intervals, so don't forget the bookstall at the back of the room, where you can pick up some bargain books, which, of course, always make lovely Christmas presents. Our first writer, Tom Tomaszewski, grew up in South London. He spent his life confirming something Thomas Bernard wrote. We have to keep company with supposedly bad characters if we are to survive and not to succumb to mental atrophy. People of good character, so-called, are the ones who end up boring us to death. He works as a psychotherapist, mainly with addicts, and his first novel, The Eleventh Letter, was published last month. Please welcome Tom Tomaszewski. Okay, hello. Uh, thanks very much for coming along. Um, I wrote this for tonight um, after a particularly unpleasant stay in Seaford, which is down near Brighton. It's called Two of Us in Seaford. We turned up at Seaford in a storm, and after the man who opened the door sat us down with a leaflet about how to get in and out of the Royal Sussex bed and breakfast, his wife, who he introduced as my wife, came into the room like a shit, I say she was like a shit, not to give you the wrong idea, because we were there to collect. She said her name was Betty, and her husband was Nigel, and she sat peeping from the window, as I imagine many had done from similarly appointed surroundings in Berlin or Eltham. She told us how there was going to be a development across the road in front of the golf course. We looked out and, in the fading light, saw some green fields through the rain and the mist. It was all lovely for November, the grass taller than maybe it would usually be, people striding through it with their dogs. Behind all that, yes, there was a golf course, men in Gore-Tex jackets, pulling trolleys, etc. And then she got on to what was a theme in this house, the theme that had brought us there. The development, she said, was due to strangers. All the foreigners coming over and hiking up the house prices. Really, how does that happen? asked George, who until that moment had been silent. Her eyes ran backwards and forwards over my face, and she said, well, they buy up the houses for investments, don't they? Or they fit their relations in one place, cousins, aunts, uncles, all under one roof. It's unhygienic, and frankly, it's dangerous. Ah, said George. Tommy, he said, as a Polish gentleman, do you live with your aunt? No, I don't, I said. Your uncle? No. Your cousin? No. It's just me and you, isn't it? Yes, George, only you. She looked kind of freaked out at that, seeing there was just the one body on a chair in front of her, mine and George's. It's disconcerting, hearing the same mouth say two different kinds of things. She went white and disappeared into the kitchen. George, I said, stop it. He shrugged. What? Save it for TripAdvisor. George, I was going to say more, but held back. Of the two of us, George has the worst job. At night, I get to go free while he sleeps with an eye on what's inside us. I listened, 
Betty was whispering to Nigel, clink, and so on. She was loading up a tray, and there she was. Betty with a tray and a white cup and a saucer and a teapot and a little jug of milk. Thank you, I said. She put the tray down in front of us more heavily than she'd meant to, and some milk splashed out. As she retreated towards the door, she stared at it unhappily. Well, she said, backing into a three-quarter size cutout of a man holding up a tray that stood at the bottom of the stairs. She jerked round as though there was something sharp in her ribs. Then she composed herself. Would you show us to our room? asked George. She nodded. I picked up the tray and we followed her out of the conservatory to our room at the top of the stairs. It would have been nice and airy if there hadn't been so much nylon. The view was a higher up version of the one downstairs, revealing a little more of the golf course through a net curtain. She showed us the bathroom where there was a card propped on the lavatory system. This toilet has a polite flush. You may need to flush more than once. This does not mean there is a blockage, only that we discourage loud flushing in the night. We ask that you respect the peace we would like to extend to all of our guests during their stay, particularly when they are sleeping. I pulled back the net curtain a fraction and touched the window. Please, said Betty, unable to help herself, don't finger the glass. Betty, if only you knew the power of resentment. Finger it, I asked. Yes, it leaves marks. People tend to, I answered. And she gave us the gust of malice and contempt we needed. Some people, she hissed, are animals. She made for the door. George gently took hold of her arm. What have you got against animals? It was a moment for her, an opportunity. Scared as she was, all she needed to do was say something on the side of love. And I suppose when you look at me and George, in spite of my Spock and his Kirk, overall there's a tendency towards generosity that would have let the dark side of the moon be on the same side as the bright one in that kind of moment. But she fluffed it. Nasty, she said, her chest rising and falling like a sparrow. She tugged for you of George and was gone. Do you think they'll kick us out, asked George. The door clicked shut. We listened to her footsteps down the stairs and in some back room where Nigel sat waiting to hear about their strange foreign guest. Too late, I replied. We went to bed, turned off the light and waited. After some hours while George slept, I made my way quietly out of the room, down the stairs, and into Betty and Nigel's room. The air was still sickly from what they'd been saying. I hovered silently at the foot of their bed and longed for them to dream. When they did, I let pour from me all that I'd taken in that evening, the contempt, the hatred like smoke from a chimney, and sure enough, their spirits rose. As I let seep from me all that George and I contained, evil like a perfume, intoxicated them, our honey trap. They rose up stupefied like wasps in the smoke and I took their hands as they grinned. They screamed when they found my hands so cold but wriggle as they did, squirm as they tried to, I took them back up the stairs with me into our room and then inside us. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tom. Our next writer is Zoe Howe. Her novel, Shine On Marquee Moon, is a rock and roll love story with a satirical twist, 
a bohemian heroine, and a fair bit of guy liner. It was shortlisted for the 2016 Virginia Prize for Fiction. Please welcome to the stage Zoe Howe. Good evening. I'm just going to go straight in. This is just from the very beginning of the book. Prologue. A new relationship. The prescient mingling of two record collections. A stark, sonic reflection of your partnership's potential or lack of. Never mind compatibility tests and first date small talk. Whether or not someone is a suitable prospect can be divined by a glance across the spines of well-loved jewel cases and battered LPs. You are looking for the records that complement your collection, the records that suitably contrast, the records that, while they've been etched on your memory since childhood, you'd never got round to buying for yourself, and most importantly, the records that double up with yours. There should always be a crossover. Inner Visions, Houses of the Holy, Abbey Road, Horses, Deal Breakers All, for me at least, but the king of the Deal Breakers, the album I seek first, is television's Marquee Moon. If it isn't there, I'm not wasting my time. Marquee Moon, Lower East Side punk at its most poetic, every luminous song evoking raw, familiar emotions. Marquee Moon, too beautiful sometimes to listen to at all, depending on how you're feeling that day. Nick agreed. Nick had it on all formats. He had a framed poster of the album artwork on his wall between the Hursts and the Herrings, I was always going to say yes to Nick. It's 4 p.m. and I'm driving west out of the city, brick brown and gray turning green. This journey has nothing at the end of it, nothing specific, not for me. It is merely an opportunity to be alone for a few hours, a secret mission with no objective other than to briefly disappear. By moving at speed out of London through an indifferent landscape, I feel as if I'm leaving something behind just for a while. The sun is going down, everything is pink. I turn my lights on, turn the radio on, turn the dial to the first station I find with any music. It's a pirate station, broadcasting presumably from someone's shed a few streets away. The DJ is playing obscure dub reggae, but frequently turns the fader down mid-track to shout about a club night in Hanwell. I kind of like it, it's a distraction. And if I'm not distracting myself, I really am alone. Actually, it's worse than that. I don't mind being alone. But I'm alone with a sound in my head that doesn't go away, no matter what music I pipe in. And no, it's not tinnitus, although I've got that too. I have a voicemail message. Don't forget those trousers need fixing in time for the gig. That's important, Sylvie. They need double stitching or whatever. Just do what you have to do. Les Tanner, manager of theatrical 80s pop band Concierge, never says goodbye. He just hangs up. In fact, he rarely says hello, just launches straight into his instructions, which today concern stage clothes that have let their wearer down at the worst possible moment, whilst posturing in front of a crowd of fans. And before you ask, that is my problem because I'm their dresser, and ripped crotches, loose buttons, and the general pimping of designer garments are all very much my thing, as it were. It's a gateway into something more creative, although the gate does seem to be a bit stiff at the moment. Every communication from Les is a barked command, but something about his harassed estuarine voice anchors me. Without Les interrupting my train of thought, maybe I'd detach, float away. 
Maybe I'd find a hotel, stay a few nights, miss a few meetings, a few shows. Maybe I wouldn't come back. Les's messages keep the thread between me and my responsibilities pulled taut. I'm tired now. I'd like to be in bed. I could have stayed in Nick's bed. Instead, I randomly chose to drive out to a place called Garsby. It's very boring. Nick's bed isn't boring. I found a Roland Keytar in there the other night. The ridiculous keyboard-slash-guitar hybrid beloved by 80s synth-pop stars the world over. He does play keyboards, but still, a bit weird. Nick's bed is also so huge, it wouldn't be out of place in The Princess and the Pea if he subtracted the vegetables and popped a keytar in there. But sometimes I need innocuous, anonymous space where there is, for once, no chance of being surprised, maddened, overstimulated. Garsby's great for that. One doesn't hit the road with a band and expect a peaceful, uncomplicated life. Sometimes I forget how much I miss a bit of calm, and then I realise I miss the chaos more and go careering back to that. It's all about the contrast. And today, I need calm and I need detachment, physical detachment, from London, from Nick. If I have that, just for a while, the widening psychological gulf might not seem so desperate. When I think about Nick, I feel as if I'm thinking about someone I'm still working out rather than the man I fell in love with on tour. A 2D figure, vague, out of focus, and surrounded by a fair bit of dry ice. Since we returned from Concierge's comeback tour, celebrated with only slight irony by the press, he's been distant, quieter. He's pretty monosyllabic in the first place. Adjusting, apparently, that I can relate to. We're all trying to navigate our way through this glittering otherworld of noise, dark corners and contradictions, a shinier, harder, dirtier side of life. If we only treated it like a glorified hop-on, hop-off bus and took a chance to enjoy the view occasionally, some of us might even get off unscathed. Thank you. Thanks so much, Zoe. Our next writer, Anna McConaughey, has had stories published in the Erotic Review, the Dublin Review, and the Bitter Oleander. Her first short story collection, Only the Visible Can Vanish, was published in September of this year. She's also had a short story published in Desire, a hundred of liter literature's sexiest stories and appeared on a panel with Mariella Frostrup, Primula Bond, and Anna Chancellor at the Ch Cheltenham Literary Festival, discussing the current role and relevance of erotic literature. Please welcome Anna. I'm going to read part of uh, a short story from my book called The Eight. Martin was waiting for his date in the cat and custard when he saw the eight in the bar across the street. She was sitting near the window, visible to all, but of course Martin felt certain she was on display for only him. She didn't have eyes, but Martin felt watched as she slowly turned her upper donut towards the window, pivoting on her tiny waist. Without thinking, he put on his coat and left the cat and custard, abandoning his half-drunk pint at the table he'd reserved. His internet date would have every right to hate him, but how often did one encounter an eight in life? 
He could never have pictured it, but now it felt like everything had led up to this collision at some cellular level he could never understand. Incomprehension, he was learning of late, could be deeply pleasurable. Like a man very different from the man he knew he was, Martin strode into the opposite bar, a drab little chain bar that could have been gaudy and polished, if still a bit unpleasant, but somehow had already faded into the dusty past. The people inside seemed dusty as well, as if they had been brought out of storage just as background for this meeting between him and the eight. They barely paid attention to Martin, which relieved him. It was as if he were carrying out a covert mission they would tolerate quietly. There was a lime and soda with ice on her table. He would learn later that numbers can't hold their liquor. But he couldn't see how she might drink it, at least not at that point. Hi, he said. His voice sounded just right to him in that instant. He sat himself opposite her. Hi, she said. I'm the eight. As well as not having eyes, she didn't have lips either, at least not visible ones. But she could talk, just loud enough for him to hear. Her voice reminded him a little of a machine that aids people with speech difficulties, like the voice of Stephen Hawking. Yes, I can see you're an eight. No, I'm the eight, the original platonic eight, a single digit solid. All the other numbers in the world have no substance, as I'm sure you're aware. They all derive from us. Again, it was so soothingly clear he shouldn't understand any of this. Don't even try. He'd always been better at the soft subjects anyway. Keep the chat coming, he told himself. So there must be other solids then? Yes, we work together. Or rather, it's like we are knights of a realm. We attend a few meetings each year, say hello, check over a few bills, that sort of thing. Martin decided not to ask if the bills were numerical or political. Did the eight even have money where she came from? How had she paid for her drink? He also decided not to ask about the other solids. Instead, he asked the eight what she was made of. She went quiet at this, making Martin wonder if he'd got too personal. Talking in general seemed to tire her. She gave him another eyeless stare. Words aren't my forte, she said. Martin decided to take that as a come on. He realized by now he was strongly attracted to the eight. He reached out his right hand and touched her, or rather he touched her waist, where her upper and lower donuts joined, where her skin would be if she had it. Instead of skin, she had a permeable layer as fine and soft as settled smoke or thick dust. That layer gave way with the pressure of his hand to a more compact, wet substance, yet one he could still pass his hand through if he was really determined. Should he stop? The eight bent slightly in observation of his hand, but said nothing. The deeper his hand went, the colder she felt, cold as sticky ice. He drew back. Her layers, her flesh, were a deep indigo mixed of so many colors it had darkened like blue mud. It had what he could only describe as a negative glow, a deeply subdued luminescence that was hard to take in. I don't want to hurt you, he said. You can't hurt me. You're so cold, he said, 
Do you feel cold? Sometimes. Now? A little. I live five minutes away, Martin announced. Come home with me. Thank you, Anna McConaughey. Next up, we welcome a local Brixton writer. Author of the novel 200, Dougie John spent his early childhood in foster homes and was expelled from secondary school without any qualifications. He left home at 16 and moved into the back of a Ford Anglia van. His worldly possessions were a shopping bag full of tatty boxing magazines and a drum kit. Dougie now lives in Brixton. He's the head coach of an amateur boxing club and fronts the band The Phony King of England, which I've just been listening to on YouTube today, as recommended. Um, please welcome to the stage Dougie John. Cheers. Viciously pretty, her lips smouldered naturally. Raven-haired, straight and silken, with a fringe that seductively obscured her left eye. The unobscured optic peered cruelly. Every now and then, I'd see her standing up. She always wore raised heels and tight-fitting trousers. She worked at the Brixton Job Centre and would often be stationed at one of the three signing-on points. I visited the wretched place once a fortnight to stake my claim for job seekers' allowance. The prospect of being summoned to sign at her desk, under her dismissive glare, used to nauseate the shit out of me. I sat before her on a handful of occasions, all of them uncomfortable, but thankfully short. I'd hand over my hastily filled-in job search booklet and adopt the persona of a sullen monosyllabic loner. My job search booklet, without fail, comprised a pack of lies. Some job advisors routinely asked for a verbal elaboration of my scribbled fibs, and I'd routinely freestyle my way around it. But her, she never questioned me too extensively. I knew she knew the score. She caught me snatching glimpses way too many times. Signing on is not unlike masturbation. It's something that looms up every couple of weeks and provides short-term relief. La petite mort for me occurred as I left the job centre building. There'd often be gridlocked buses packed full of gawping faces directly outside. Over time, I perfected the art of deceptive exit. On leaving, I'd turn an immediate sharp right to create the illusion of having walked past, not out of. <laughs> Much like regular masturbation, Signing on became quite an effort for scant reward. My relationship with the Department of Work and Pensions came to an abrupt and traumatic full stop. The end game started with the sound of a large brown envelope being scrunched through my letterbox. 
Two weeks later, I picked the thing up and opened it. Turned out to be a bombshell from the fraud squad. They somehow located my undeclared inheritance and wanted a word with me under caution. The letter strongly advised me to seek legal representation. My appointment happened to be for nine o'clock the following morning at Brixton Job Centre. I didn't sleep well that night. Apprehension seesawed with indignation until the early birds sang. Not the best preparation for what lay ahead. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, Stu and Zelda. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dougie. We're nearly up to our first interval, um, but just first of all, um, we, and we'll resume at 8.45, but uh, first of all, we'd like to welcome to the stage our sound technician extraordinaire, Stax Dempsey, uh, who will treat us to a couple of songs. Please welcome to the stage, Rally Rye. <laughs> well, that's kind of confusing. Um, yeah, that's me, brother. I'm here. I want to play air guitar and sing. Now give me a second to put this guitar Sorry, that's my fault. I probably got the timing wrong. Um, in the meantime, I will say, you uh, please do have a look at our website, if you haven't already, at brixtonbookjam.com. Um, we've got... Um, so you can go back and see uh, previous Brixton Book Jams and um, listen to the writers, amazing writers we've had here before. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Brixton Book Jam and also find us on Facebook. Um, so um, this is our last Book Jam for 2016. And we're always looking for new writers to come and join us. Um, whether you're a published writer or you, you're writing at home in your spare time and, and would like to have an audience, please do think of anyone who um, you could um, recommend who would like to take part in this amazing event. So um, I think we're ready now. Um, and 8.45, we'll be back. Hello, everybody. I'm gonna play a couple songs, a couple short songs. First tune is called Maria Elena. <clears throat> it's about a young gifted woman in Mexico fell in love with a Texan in the time of the Texas Re Revolution. And it goes something like this. Mariolena with sad eyes Turn down your lamp 
We're alone tonight There's revolution On the street outside But we're here together In the lowland blight Maria Elena With a sad eye Bless me and ease me You breathe starlight Tomorrow for you And freedom we fight Maria Elena Why the sad eye Maria Elena, tell me what do you know As you read the tea leaves, what stirs your soul For onward to battle, in the morning we go Maria Elena, tell me what do you Maria Elena with the sad eyes dare not forget me you many years pass by minstrel send boys to battle but your sad eyes they know they march to the hell where the youth and life Go Yes, guys. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm going to do one more number. I should have tuned up before that one.
His next tune is uh, a song about a Cajun guy south of Baton Rouge. Faithful worker working on the um, working on the plantation after slavery. This is in 1937. Sharecropper he was. to that that young man but him being a Cajun it didn't go too well with the with the white folk in town this is called bounty on my head Tell them why the daddy ain't coming home. The federal man, he got me in the wrong. Injustice done behind the barrel of a gun. Bounty on my head. The full moon rise. Bounty on my head. So I run the back roads. Wade through the swamp, man, I can see the feds I'm running down the road trying to catch the slow freight ahead Train gonna take me west to California Sea The preacher said Behind every law ain't nothing but truth, son The devil depraved the pride, permissiveness That's you, boyhood Wish I could swing back See you, babe Back in Baton Rouge But the odds they stacked I make it home too soon Where well, the judge, he said Bounty on my head. Oh, let's go. Here we go. 
So if the children cry, mama don't tell them why The daddy ain't coming home That federal man, he got me in the wrong Injustice done behind the bell of a gun Bounty on my head with the full moon rising Bounty on my head With the judge he say Bounty on my head The judge he say Bounty on my head Thank you, y'all. Riley Rye is the name I go under. And you can find it uh, online. Catch you later. Thank you to Rally Rye. Um, I clearly need to sort out my time management skills because it's already 10 to 9. So we're going to have a short break so you can have a drink and um, uh, start back at 9 o'clock.